Welcome, everyone, to the program She Walks with Reverend Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock. We are going to jump right into the second part of the discussion they're having with Dr. Kristen Krauss. They've been discussing the recent tragedy in Buffalo, New York, and talking about the replacement theory. Let's get back to the conversation. Why does this push people to violence, or at least in certain individuals to violence, right? And if all of a sudden, not only are you seeing an extra essential threat to your to your race or your group and that you're in this this culture of saying like well you know be a man and 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 protect but it's also well what are you saying that I didn't I don't deserve the things that I have are you going to take them away from me Mm -hmm. Uh, are you saying that I didn't get here by the sweat of my own brow you know especially if that's what we value in our culture is you know you get what you deserve and and you you gain by hard work not by just being born into whatever it is you're born into. It's hard. And I know that there's lots of people who talk about this in really, really wonderful and great ways. All of the resources that were coming out with the the push towards anti-racism training and and, and understanding in the last couple of years, I think probably says this a lot better than I'm saying it right now. But I think that helps us start to understand why folks are are doing this. And, you know, I think a lot of people are going to look at it and say, oh, it's mental health right? This is how often massacres that are committed, especially by white folks, are, are, are talked about. That's the rhetoric to, of how we can, we can push it away from institutions and towards personal responsibility, mm-hmm. and which is also part of our culture, right? We're supposed to take personal responsibility for things, even if the system is also playing a large role. Um, and I, I think we can't say that mental health doesn't have a role in a lot of these kinds of things, but I would say that it often is use as a way to ignore the institutions that are behind a lot of these kinds of attacks. Um, and so that's when we can talk about Christchurch in New Zealand, and we can talk about the Pittsburgh synagogue attacks, and we can talk about the Buffalo massacre. And like, there, you know, we could go on and on about other kinds of massacres that have happened that have these kinds of backgrounds, right? Uh, oh, the El Paso, I, f- I forgot about that one, the El Paso attacks in 2019 where they, the attacker killed 23 people at a Walmart um, because they looked Hispanic. You know, those are all, they all become disconnected. Those are just all isolated lone wolf attacks as opposed to being absolutely connected by these ideas of claiming white genocide or great replacement or Hispanic invasion and all those kinds of things. And I think, Dr. Krauss, I, I, and this is uh, probably not going to sound that good coming from me. I should know better, but I'm going to say it anyway. I actually feel and think that situations like this, we, Carly and I talked about it on our last show about mental illness and, you know, and mental health issues, how, you know, that's become the kind of like the blanket to try to justify, especially white dominant action of oppression to the extreme of massacre over non-white people you know we want to use that all the time to to describe it and first of all it's unfair because there are many people with mental health issues who don't buy guns and go out and kill 10 to 40 people so i mean it's really unfair to lump that in there and try to say well because of their mental health issues they've done that no and if, and then i would go further this is what i said i didn't want to say but i would i would say it anyway i would go further to say if if that's the case then anyone who exhibits you know racist behavior then that racism must be connected to mental health issues and i know that's a major leap 
and we could talk about it and people could say that I'm whacked or anything, but, but we're saying that without saying it because every time somebody does one of these racist statements, we try to couch it in mental health issues. So then are we able to say that, that racism uh, or racist behavior is linked to mental health, uh, mental issues? And then that would open up a big can of worms because there are many, many people who would not say they have mental health issues who are extreme racist. I know <laughs> that was way off, but, you know, I think yeah. about that sometimes. Well, and I think, I mean, it is interesting uh, in part because, you know, we can kind of look to see how, where the the history of talking about you know the link of mental health and mass shootings in part because people will often look to the um the clock tower shootings in texas i can't remember exactly where this was now that way way back in the mid 20th century this was the the person who had ptsd and other mental health issues who went up to the clock tower and as a sharpshooter and killed a bunch of people and, and this is sort of one of those moments where people started talking about mass shootings as mental health, um, because this was actually pretty clearly part of the reason why the, he went up there. So not all mass shootings are, are racially motivated, right? And so there, you know, when we're talking about mass shootings, and then also when we're talking about you know racially motivated massacres, the rhetoric goes over those, I think, umbrellas, those two things when we're talking about mental health issues. And so I do think it crosses over and it's a useful tool for people to say, oh, no, it was mental health. This person was just sort of off their rocker. Um, it's not racism that's behind it, right? It sort of gives people an out, I think. Especially when they're young white boys. You know, we can have a sniper that's black and no one talks about his mental illness. They just talk about him, that he's just a horrible person who's strategically done all this. But these people who are doing these mass shootings that are motivated by race have had to do a lot of strategy to get there. So they were within their faculties to be able to go throughout the community, purchase a gun, go and visit a site, no premeditate, do all of that kind of stuff that usually people with, with a lot of mental illness or mental illness that keeps them from functioning, quote unquote, that is unmedicated or not diagnosed, they don't do that. So these young white boys right. always get that as a scapegoat their mental health, their mental illness, that comes up more often than not. And especially when their target is brown and black people. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's also a way to distract folks from talking about gun losses. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so in the other, in the other case, right. So again, another institutional or structural issue as to, you know, why, well, you know, it's not guns, it's the access to guns for people who are unstable. Mm. Okay. Um, but then also, you know, oh, it's not right supremacy is access to guns for people who are unstable, right? So it's sort of a, it's a, you know, don't look over here, look over here distraction. And, and it allows folks that out and it allows people to stigmatize. I think that you were getting at this as well. It allows people to stigmatize groups of, of people that really, this is not necessarily the, the one driving factor that's behind this. So, you know, that's another group of people that we get to say aren't really human, right? Those people with mental health issues. And that whole issue about being in, inhuman, I mean, this goes all the way back, you know, to enslavement in America, you know, and anywhere that the colonizer was or, you know, and acted that way toward brown and black people. And it, it almost yeah. like, you know, we looked at the media's coverage. We were laughing. Carly, I don't know what Johnny Depp's ex-wife's name is. What was her name, Carly? You knew. Amber Heard. Amber Heard. <laughs> You know, we can still be talking about this and their relationship and anything public or non-public that's gone on between them and their divorce. But 10 people, their lives 
have been destroyed and others wounded. And it's pretty much forgotten about because those people that were killed in this massacre and some of the other massacres were inconsequential, you know, to, to the media. You don't get any, what, what kind of points or what kind of viewing do you get talking about these horrible things that have happened to these people? Because for some people, they think that that's just the way it was. And they try to tie it to a crime or something that's happened. And when they can't do that, it, it's not newsworthy. Yeah. I have two things that I, first is you were talking about like deconstructing fat phobia and there's a book that I'd love to recommend. You may have already read it, but it's called fearing the black body, the racial origins of fat phobia. Really excellent read. If either of you would like to read that. Um, I would, I would second that. And then um, the thing that I was sort of thinking about uh, when we were recording our, our previous episode, was this idea of violence. And I guess there's sort of two parts to this. The first is what triggers someone to take this violent ideology and then put it into action, right? What is the thing that kind of flips them over that edge? But I think also what we consider to be violence, right? It's almost like there's this idea that unless you are harming another person physically, that that's not violence. Um, that ideology can't be violent or that it, it can be, but it only matters if it's enacted. And I just wonder, you know, I know that you've studied some, you know, violence in your, in your um, PhD work. So I would love to just hear your kind of thoughts about that. Yeah. Um, so the first part is what is it, what pushes somebody over the edge to actually commit violence? Um, I mean, I, I would honestly say maybe, I, maybe it's obvious that I am an institutionalist, so I think institutions really, really matter uh, in terms of behavior. And so we're, you know, because on an individual level, right, uh, when we're just talking about individual people, it's there's so many things that could be going on that it's really difficult to predict any one individual person, whether or not they're going to tip over into violence. Right. But I so I, I'm going to be talking maybe on more of a mass level and institutional level. I really, really do think that it has to do with political culture and, and not politics. And I think maybe the lay sense that when people talk about politics, they're specifically talking about elections and politicians. You know, I would argue that everything is political. So when I'm talking about political culture, I'm really just talking about culture. And when I say everything is political, I mean, it has to do with power. And if it has to do with power, it usually has to do with hierarchy or power imbalance, right? And so, you know, who has the power? Who wants the power? Who thinks they're losing their power? And so if you're in a situation where you are in a culture where violently enforcing your power is part of what makes you the thing that you are, right? Like, being a man and being forceful and being powerful, sometimes backing that up with violence, whether that's violent threats or actual use of violence, right? This is the same kind of ideology that <clears throat> makes it so that uh, intimate partner violence tends to be committed against women by men in general. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen in other directions or in same-sex couples or, or, or other kinds of gender mixes, right? But if we're talking statistically in general, it tends to be the people who have the power over the people who don't have the power to enforce their own superiority. You know, if you're in that situation where we're not talking about a gender dynamic, but a racial dynamic, people who have the power using it as people who don't have the power. And that's seen as like how you define certain kinds of masculinity. That's going to add to, you know, what do you do when you're threatened? And how, how are you, what are you reading? How are you, how are you feeling about those kinds of things? Again, I guess this isn't necessarily getting to the root of your question, maybe Carly, about why this person 
but I think it's sort of setting up the context. Um, and so we don't know what happened in this person's specific life, right? That pushed them. But we also don't know what happens in different individual specific people's lives when they say hurt their their loved ones. And, you know, Dr. Cross, I, I'm, I'm really like, I think some of this is just part of the power dynamic because, you know, the victimization and the trauma that these people in Buffalo and other places that have that have to experience this is not new as you said earlier when we started out talking on our previous show with you <laughs> we were talking about uh you know that this is not radical this is not necessarily new and you gave us the whole historical and historical reference of you know how we got here well this same trauma you know this is the same kkk trauma this is the same yep. burn your city trauma this is the same yep. power dynamic where white people have come into places and spaces of predominantly black people and attempted to eradicate them and so this 18 year old that we were talking about in a couple of shows back is not doing anything any different than regular and that sounds awful but white bread quote unquote uh, uh regular intimidation by white supremacists for non-white people. I mean, this is the same story. It's yeah. just, it's just, it's not really very different than burning a whole city down or having sundown towns or any of those things that that we we've talked about. And here we are in oh, yeah. the first century. What are we going to do? Yeah. Well, and I think that that's the thing because a lot of the coverage in the news is saying that this is fringe, this is radical. The question is like, how did this fringe idea mainstream? And there are a few pieces out there that I've read that I, as I'm reading them and going, yes, this is what I've been thinking is it's not fringe. This is a fundamental underlying ideology, not just of the United States, but of the dominant social order of the world in many places or the colonizer ideology, I suppose, yeah. right. That has been spread through colonization. Right. You know, and I was reading an article from the Southern poverty law center earlier that basically was like, look, fears of white genocide or white extinction can inspire state violence just as surely as individual violence. And I think that is a question of, you know, what can we do about it? And again, we're going back to, you know, I'm an institutionalist, but I think so much of it has to do with institutions, but institutions are really hard to change and can produce backlash. You know, this is one of the reasons why we had so much backlash against reconstruction. Mm. Uh, so much backlash and all, you know, not that reconstruction was necessarily the gold standard of wonderful, but there were so many things that were there to try to start to readjust the system to make up for Thing, you know, protecting black voters and, you know, trying to get some things adjusted and, you know, and the backlash against reconstruction, right? The backlash against the civil rights movement and civil rights laws in the 1960s, the backlash, you know, we can talk about the backlash against Me Too. It's interesting that you brought up the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard stuff that's going on right now. You know, there's so much to be said about how that trial is a microcosm of the backlash against the Me Too movement in the United States, right? Speaking of other kinds of imbalances, you know, institutions don't want to change, especially cultural institutions. And so then that is the question is how, you know, what do we do? Uh, I don't know if that's where we wanted to end up here today. <laughs> and I don't think I necessarily have an answer. Education has a lot to do with it, but that's not the only piece. You know, we need to be educated about these things and understand that this didn't come out of nowhere and that this does have a long history and that it isn't fringe. This has been an underlying piece of our, our country, if not the last couple of centuries in the western world yeah i think that 
you know, this, we, you know, we started out a show ago talking about, or maybe two shows ago, talk about this whole, the great replacement or replacement theory. And, you know, now we're talking about power and dynamics and, <laughs> and see how this could shift very easily to be men over women. I mean, it, it, it just is one of those threads that is within uh, the American culture for sure. And anywhere that the colonizer was, you know, it's built mm -hmm. in there. And, and I, I wonder what do we do about the added trauma that these kinds of things inflict on people? Because I don't think it's just black people. I'm a black person, but I think when these kinds of things happen, it, it speaks to those of us who are not as empowered as dominant people. And especially when you have white young males you know, being the, the perpetrator, it speaks to how vulnerable you, me, those of us who are not part of that white male structure can be in situations. And so, you know, this revictimization and trauma and walking around here with it and living with it is another whole story. And then we, you talked a little bit earlier, Dr. Krause, you mentioned a CRT. Well, now we've got this replacement theory and there's been some memes about, you know, you don't want to teach uh, CRT, but now you want to tell everybody about replacement theory, you know, the great replacement theory. And all of these are imbalances of power. What you can do, what you can't do, where you can go, where you can't go. And personally, me, I went to, we recently had an Iris Festival here in Greenville, Tennessee, and it was a great festival, but I told my sister, you know, there was probably, I don't know, maybe a thousand people, and she and I were the only brown people. And it was like, I said, Carol, we're the only black people here. Can something happen to us? And would anyone care? And we're 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 immediate targets because of our of the hue of our skin. We stand out in those situations, and 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 you know, and I know as women sometimes we stand out in situations where there are men. And so I know I'm rambling, but what do we do about this whole revictimizing uh, and the trauma? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's so much that you just brought up there. I, I, it makes me think, you know, I used to live uh, in, in northern Arizona, um, right up against uh, tribal lands, against the Navajo Nation. And, and this makes me think of, first of all, how ignorant I was of the situation of indigenous communities and, and native communities in our, in our country before I actually lived somewhere where I could see it with my own eyes. Um, and so for number one, I think, you know, understanding situations means that we have to lift that ignorance away. And, but number two, you know, the, the, you know, that's a community, I think that, you know, we can look to, to understand the, in particular, the, the devastating effects of generational trauma because of this kind of power imbalance, right? And not, you know, I mean, we can obviously see it in African-American communities and other communities as well, but that, that community jumps to mind to me. You know, I mean, they've even seen how some of that kinds of trauma can actually have genetic effects on, on people um, because, you know, because you know, the genocide that was perpetrated against those communities for, um, you know, during colonization and after, right? And so that's one of the things that I think of. But I think the thing that jumped out to me as you were speaking has to do with arguments about how in particular people in power, right? So in, in this case, politicians, but I think um, other you know business leaders and, and those kinds of things to remain in power have really looked to divide groups that if they joined together because they understood that their situations were similar could actually do something. So, you know, and it makes me think about 
you know, the time during Reconstruction and after in the 19th century, you know, why is it that poor white folks didn't band together with newly unenslaved people to push against their, the people who held sway over them? Because there was lots of things that they had in common in terms of difficulties in life. And so how, you know, so what do you do to, to get those poor white folks to not band together with the black folks who are now no longer enslaved. You tell the poor white folks that, that they are better than the, you know, you give them a reason to think that they're distinct, right? So you activate that divide or that fault line between race so that the class uh, doesn't kick in and, and mean that people are banding together. And I, you know, I think that maybe maybe this is pie in the sky, but maybe one of the ways that we think about pushing against these institutions is getting people to think about what we have in common with the folks who are suffering, you know, and, and to understand what it means to have this kind of trauma by thinking about, you know, what are the intersectional ways in which I have experienced these kinds of things so that I have, you know, I mean, maybe this is pushing towards, yeah, pushing towards people's self selfishness, right? What do you gain by other people gaining? Because you need to get people to do that cost-benefit analysis, right, of why would you want to give up your privilege to lift someone else up besides the fact that they're, they're human beings. We can't get everybody that way. I wish we could. I wish we could. But so how do we get people to think, what is what advantage do I gain by lifting somebody else up? Because we have common interest, because we have common suffering, because we have, yeah, common interest, right? I don't know. Maybe that's a way to go. Maybe we need to get folks to think about these cross-class difficulties or you know we really you know this is one of the arguments that they make about making sure that feminism is intersectional right and not just white women feminism because we need to make sure that we understand that we can help everybody if we think about it that way as opposed to just lifting up some and i think that's been our that's been our whole you know crabs in a barrel cats in a sack our whole concept of of the powerful versus the the less powerful it just it behooves us to kind of figure this out because I think in not just even looking at who's has the right to vote in you know 2045 2050 whenever when they're when the supposedly the white vote will be less not necessarily white people but the white vote there'll be fewer of them I think our challenge is our our demographics are changing and there is Mm -hmm. it's almost like and there is nothing white men can do about it you know, and because some of the things have, we've we've gotten rid of, we're starting to see one another as people. And I know that sounds pie in the sky and all that, but I mean, it's happening through our families. It's happening through birth. It's happening through, I mean, there are probably none of us who accept extremes on, on many sides, but there are few of us who don't have other people who are part of our family who we love and care about. And if you don't have, then you've been fighting like hell to keep that from happening. And you are really an extremist, whether you're a black extremist, a brown extremist, a white extremist, you know, red, yellow, whatever, an extremist. Because if not, I mean, if we sat here and talked right now, you know, our families are multi-ethnic, whether we wanted them to be or not. (laughs) You know, and from a gender perspective, I mean, they're all inclusive, you know, they're gender fluid. I mean, our, we don't we don't have those choices anymore. The choices are being taken away from us. And so I guess we could embrace that or we could fight it. And so yeah. some of this extremist behavior, I think, is trying to fight the fact that it's no longer their call. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. And I mean, it goes back to my, at least my personal definition of politics, which is, you know, about power and who has it, who wants it, who doesn't want to lose it um, and how, how people try to maneuver to get it or hold on to it. You know, so it really does. There is that fear of losing what little power you have and then wanting the power that you don't have on an individual level and on a, on a a group level or or an institutional level. You know, we and we haven't really gone there either. But you know, we could talk about this in the realm of, of sexual orientation and, and and gender identity too, right? And you know, one of the big pushbacks right now too, or the split, which just makes me crazy. Uh, or that's not a good way to put it. It 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 is a a frustrating thing for me seeing, for example, how divided the LGBTQ community is over issues of trans inclusion right now in a way that makes us very, it makes it very difficult for that community to to push for recognition of humanity when folks in the group can't even decide who gets to be human in that group and who doesn't Um, and it's another way to divide it's another way to make it so that there are people who don't get to be people anymore and who get to be target and you know if we want to talk about targets of violence in in the u.s right now our trans community is is right in the crosshairs and then you know you layer over other kinds of intersectional issues, um, which I would also argue goes back to the, the issue of how does this kind of trauma of, of structural violence affect our communities? Because if you are a, a victim of structural violence, you know, what do you do with that trauma? Sometimes it means that you end up enacting trauma on your own community. And so, you know, we can look at that in terms of inter- intimate partner violence, for example, in certain communities or, or violence against trans folks. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I think that it is tied up in that as well. When you were talking earlier about violence, I, I was hoping that we would get to that whole structural violence piece, because sometimes when we talk about it, we we think that it's um, something that's manifested that you can see. And so you can mm-hmm. call it out. But structural violence is it does a number, a daily number on people. You know, mm-hmm. that may be something that we could have you back and uh and, and talk about, because I think that is what people are missing. And that's this whole trauma. And this is the collective trauma, the part that we care, that we carry with us every day in our, in our yeah. lives. Um, so yeah, thanks for, for reminding us that that may be a good topic <laughs> for you to come yeah. back. And, and to talk. I'd love to come in and talk about that, you know, and I can speak as an expert to a certain extent in the sense that I am a, a political scientist and we talk a lot about this stuff. And as I said, I'm an institutionalist. And so I, I think about the structures of things. You know, I I had the privilege of teaching a class on, on law and society this last semester that I really focused on that question of structural violence within the justice system. And so if that's something that y'all are interested in talking about, I would love to come back and discuss it a little bit more. Because I think that that is a really good example of being able to see structural violence in a way that is more tangible when you talk about it within the justice system. And in particular, like if, you know, to plug another book, if, if anyone listening here has not read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, they absolutely should. I think it is one of the best books that I've read in the last five years, uh, maybe even the last 10 or 20, um, in terms of, especially in terms of explaining structural violence and, and the way that it does inflict trauma on communities um, that then perpetuates violence in communities um, and between communities. And I think it, it goes serves, in with a great replacement too. <laughs> yes, it does. And it serves to keep the status quo, which again, mm-hmm. you know, gives us the fear of the great mm-hmm. replacement. Carly, I know you're saying we got to shut up. So 
No, this is such a great conversation and I definitely want us to continue talking about all of this and have Dr. Krauss back on to talk about it. But yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Krauss, for coming on to talk with us. This has been super enlightening for me. I've got a reading list going um, so I can dig into some of this. And we really appreciate your perspective as someone who is a political scientist who studies this stuff to be able to put this into terms that, you know, we as non-experts, you know, can't. So I really, really appreciate that. So thank you all for listening to us this week and we will be back again next week. And um, if you have questions, please send them to us um, and we will prepare for Dr. Krause's return with those questions. Thank you all so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Pass on the victory. We shall walk.